0: Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the First Australians, on whose traditional lands we record recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the Elders of the Ngunnawal and Nambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go.
1: Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm your host today, Kylie Wong-Dolan, together with Simon Theobald. Hi. Today's podcast was due to be a panel discussion between myself, Jodie Lee Trembath, Julia Brown and Simon Theobald, but unfortunately, due to some technical problems, we won't be bringing that to you today.
0: Instead, we'll be returning to a panel we did way back at the beginning of The Familiar Strange, with special guest Stephanie Betts, former executive producer Ian Pollock, as well as Julia Brown and myself, Simon Theobald. So without further ado, here it is.
1: Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's Schools of Culture, History and Language and of Archaeology and Anthropology, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre of Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Julia Brown, together with my fellow familiar strangers, Ian Pollock. Hello. Today we've got a special guest, Stephanie Betts. Hello. Steph is a PhD student here at ANU She's in the field of digital anthropology, studying people's relationship with computer game characters, and she's also the president of the Australian Network of Student Anthropologists. And Simon Theobald. G'day. Jodie Trimbath is still away in South America.
2: On her way to the Galapagos.
1: Fantastic. We miss just her in Patagonia. still. Patagonia. Crazy life. Okay, let's get started. Ian. What's on your mind this week?
2: I am thinking about those things that people in a culture say, this is what we do in this culture. And then when you look at them, they never nobody actually does it. I'm uh, writing a chapter on kinship at the moment. I do my fieldwork in southeastern Indonesia, where there's kind of a, a kinship system that's been very finely described. And there's little variations from culture to culture, but is understood to be like really totalizing and universal, like an abstract system that, that describes a lot that's really important about people in this part of the world. The key aspect I'm looking at here is bride wealth, right? So this is what determines who belongs in what family is whether when you got married, the man's family paid a price to the woman's family. In my area, they say that, yes, this is fundamental. And yet when I asked around, nobody in my village had paid bride wealth. People who were supposed to have paid it hadn't paid it. They would just look at me like, if I asked if they'd paid their bride wealth, they'd be like, well, I kind of, I didn't. I'm supposed to, but I didn't. And the more I looked around, the more examples I found of people saying this is a thing that we do that nobody actually did. So I blogged about this recently about a game that children were supposed to play in the area called Kasti. And it's like a form of baseball, I was told. And it made me really excited. I'm an American. I was in Indonesia. I wasn't expecting to find anything resembling baseball. I really wanted to find this. But the more I asked around, people would say, oh, no, 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 we play it, but nobody actually plays it. And it really gets to the heart of the question of what a culture is. Because we conceive of these sort of formal abstract systems of like a cosmology or an aesthetic or artistic system or something that defines what constitutes a culture. But the more you actually spend time with people, the more you find that so many of them don't do that thing, or they kind of find their weird little strategic ways around doing the thing, or they do the thing, but they hate it. Have you guys encountered things like this in your fieldwork as well?
0: (laughs) No, everyone was a seamless automaton that magically reproduced the cultural forms that they grew up in.
1: Well, I think this is a classic thing that anthropologists are trained to look for, that question of the differences between what people say and what they do. But I think what you're highlighting here is that what people say is just as important in their kind of cultural imaginary of who they are. As what they do anyway,
2: because it's tempting to say like the real culture is this, but then there's all these deviations from it. I don't think it's the case at all. I think what what we're talking about is the culturally acceptable elevation
0: of a normative vision, and the reality of how that's lived up to or not lived up to. But they're still both like culture. Just because people say, I mean, yeah, like everyone says, everyone in Uzbekistan goes to mosque every Friday, and yet 90% of people aren't going to mosque on Friday in Uzbekistan. But they both say something about the culture, right? There's some kind of discussion that needs to happen between these two things.
3: And even if people aren't actually doing the thing, they're still managing to transmit its importance through culture. If that's by words or the attitudes that people are expressing towards it, it's something that's sort of like existing presumably for some time in the cultural imaginary. So it's not disappearing, even though people are no longer perhaps doing the thing. I guess it's kind of similar
1: to whether something does happen and still carry the same meaning that it traditionally was supposed to, like celebrating Christmas or Easter recently it kind of taps into the same phenomenon in right. a way. So, that so
2: in a way sometimes people carry forward the meaning but not the practice and sometimes they carry yeah. forward the practice but, but not the meaning. Uh, yeah. See, I
0: think this, it's a bit more complicated than that because we don't – I mean just to give an example, the secularization thesis, right, that holds that Europe became more secular. But I've always had a problem with that because you, you can't measure – today's sorry you can't measure the past world by today's standard so we don't know how much people actually believed in the celebration of christmas before right so much as everyone went and did christmas and now people don't feel the same pressure to say well i'm a good christian who
2: believes in christmas anymore but you never really know what people believe right this is the thing we keep running up against you never know what people believe but you do know what they say and you do know what they do
0: you don't know what people believe you do know what they say and you do know what they do I think anthropology has sometimes privileged what people do over what they say. But I think they are ultimately intimately related to each other, even as people say, you know, this is the thing that we do that no one does, or this is the thing that we all do and no one says we do. There's a kernel of something going
1: on there that needs to be unpacked. Anyway, moving on. Steph, what have you been thinking about lately?
3: So what I've been thinking about lately is something called deep fakes. Now, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this, but it's basically a sophisticated form of Photoshop for video. People have been able to manipulate video for some time, but to do this in any kind of a realistic or convincing way, you needed the budget, time and resources of a special effects studio. Now, however, using machine learning or deep learning, which is where the portmanteau deep fakes comes from, one single person with a reasonably powerful computer can uh, manipulate videos to make it look like someone is doing or saying something that they never did and make it look pretty darn realistic. Now, this has got a lot of people quite scared about the possibilities. In an era of fake news and post-truth, the sort of possibility of a um, video popping up of Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin saying something inflammatory could potentially spark a sort of international incident. However, at the moment, it's limited to the rather more banal and predictable usage of porn, where people basically Photoshop celebrities' faces on top of porn actresses' bodies. There's quite a few sort of applications for this, such as the possibility that all of the data that you've put up, the videos and images of yourself on Facebook and other social media sites, could then be used to insert you, your friends, your family, into videos aimed at you, like advertisements. Could also be used um, quite maliciously in the context of revenge porn or blackmail, where people can put you into a position where it looks like you're doing something quite outrageous and then either use that to harm your reputation or to demand money from you. But from an anthropological point of view, I find deep fakes interesting because it further confounds the relationship between image and reality. Baudrillard, back in the 1970s, before sort of the digital revolution, was talking about the way in which the image was slowly becoming divorced from reality until it eventually became a simulacrum, something that actually replaced reality. And this has been occurring even faster with the advent of digital computing. We've been living with the idea of Photoshop making images not necessarily entirely believable. But until now, film hasn't lied. Well, that's all about to change in probably only a matter of months. And the sort of implications for the way in which we engage with reality is quite interesting, I think, because whether something is technically true or not doesn't matter so much as we think it's Authentic or believable or plausible. So I think we're on the on the very verge of a um, of a dramatic reconsideration of reality and image.
1: This is really fascinating to think about in terms of the idea of delusion. My ethnographic participants with schizophrenia often experience delusions that do stem from reality of some sorts, but it has become distorted. However, they cannot share that reality. But what we're talking about now is the possibility of shared delusions.
3: Yes, and when these videos go viral, it's highly possible they'll circulate amongst like a certain segment of the population who is already predisposed to believing that video or, on the contrary, to being outraged by it. One of the fascinating things about images is that The way in which they represent a moving human body to us means that we tend to engage with them in a non-critical way. We tend to accept them literally on face value. And particularly with a moving image, our first thought isn't, well, hasn't been to date, that this could be a fake.
2: Is this something that I could take to put myself into a bulls game in the form of Michael Jordan in the early 90s? Yes. That sounds awesome.
3: <laughs> People have done it. People have um, put their own faces on top of like uh, celebrities accepting like Oscars, like all sorts of things. that's sort of a self-aggrandizement sort of. See,
2: I'm interested. Obviously, the kind of end of the world aspects of this are terrifying. But I'm also interested in like the artistic aspects of it. For instance, doing you could put yourself into your favorite movie, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You can also bring back dead actresses or actors who um, aren't able to do movies anymore. You but could now recre- they could.
2: You could recreate an existing movie with an entirely different cast of celebrities even. Right? Or your you could, friends. Or your friends. That would be so much fun. Oh, my God. I could fake my whole fieldwork. That would be amazing. You could just have everybody be you. Yeah. It would have been incredible.
0: Look at all this video I shot from my fieldwork. Everywhere I went, I saw myself.
1: I hope someone's doing an ethnography on this because it's fascinating. Well, this
3: only emerged late last year. So in December last year, there was one person doing this. In January, they released an app. That lets people do it in a much more automated fashion, and then in February there was ninety thousand people in a community dedicated to this technology. So, so there's
2: like a community, like a like a web yeah. a subreddit or something that's dedicated to this.
3: Yeah, based around porn, as <laughs> because it's the internet. But in the future, this could be picked up by lots of different people for lots of different purposes. Um, some benign, like what you're talking about, but also the Russian involvement in the fake news scandal with fake bo- Facebook, for example, Facebook. Well. Suggests that this could go much, much further. Okay,
1: so sex, death and destruction. Simon, what are you
3: thinking about this week?
0: I am thinking about hatred. And I come to this through a sort of news story, which is that John Bolton has recently been appointed National Security Advisor to Donald Trump. Now, I'm sure most of you who have any inkling of my political orientation is that I'm not a particularly big fan of Donald Trump, but I probably wouldn't say I hated him. However, John Bolton is someone who I I really feel a particularly visceral emotional reaction to, in part because I think he represents everything that's worst about America in its most unbridled and vicious form, and in part because I think he presents a kind of genuine danger to people I know who live in Iran. But it got me thinking about the degree to which really strong emotions like hatred play a role in our work as anthropologists. Now, Goss Haj, who I interviewed last week, no, who I interviewed some time ago, but whose interview was put on the internet last week it talks a bit about this in an article he wrote called "Hating Israel in the Field," where he talked about his experiences during the 2006 war between Israel and Lebanon. But for me, the work doesn't quite get to the the kind of issue, which is whether or not we, as anthropologists who are trained to be self-reflexive, have room for emotions that are so strong. Like hate, whether we think that these are the kind of things that we have to exp- dispense with. Because, in some ways, we often talk about hate as an emotion that clouds one's vision. And the aim of anthropology, I think, has always been to kind of make clearer social relations. So what do you guys think? Is there a place for hate in anthropology?
3: I think that there is, as long as it's handled very carefully. I think that the fact that hate is such a visceral emotion, that it crops up with such intensity, is actually a sign that something is there that needs to be investigated. But what if I just, like, hate my informant? Did you? <laughs> I didn't actually hate my informants.
0: But my informants sometimes said things to me that were really... Difficult to Profoundly digest. opposite to the okay. way I kind of perceived the world. They were, and they were quite, yeah, they were quite difficult to stomach.
1: Yeah, and I do think that it is our responsibility to try and work through... Well, Hating your informants. <laughs> as Steph was saying, I think it's important to use that hate as a bit of a tool, as something that we can tune into but perhaps given some distance During my fieldwork, I had several encounters with people. It was mainly overhearing conversations or witnessing certain things that didn't necessarily bring visceral feelings of hatred, but it did stir me enough to not be able to look at that data for a year. And what was interesting is I knew that I had to go back to it because it felt irresponsible for me not to look at it at all because it made me feel a certain way. But when I did go back to it, I looked at it slightly differently and I was able to kind of explain it within a broader context of the rest of my fieldwork work and analyse it, drawing on what other anthropologists have said about similar things so that it became productive in the end. But if I'd tried to write about that straight away, it just would not have been, for want of a better word, objective enough. So that's that's,
0: that's essentially my problem, though, is that that's a kind of tale of of you having to leave the thing behind that clouds the research and come back to it at a point where it doesn't cloud it. And so if you if you in like the heat of passion and field work you feel like you hate something, does that mean that we have to wait until the hate has passed before you can
2: analyze it, work on it? There's a question of relevance too, right? Because we didn't go to the field to study ourselves. In the most basic sense, we went to the field to study the other people who were there.
1: Exactly. And
2: so while we might feel hatred and we might say to ourselves, we are in the same situation that our informants are in and we, I feel hatred, so probably they do too. What does our hatred really tell us about what they feel? I mean, coming back to our earlier point, you never really know what another person is feeling.
3: I don't think that that's the role that hatred plays or any other emotion in the field. It's not to give us a sense of what other people are feeling, although perhaps it could give us leads into conversations that we might have. It's about ourselves being the tool of research. Like there's a reason that we're there physically in the field when we're sort of engaging in these as much as you can be in a right, digital ethnographer Right, i you're a digital ethnographer. But I'm in, in that instance, I'm in the field in the exact same way that ev- every one of my informants is. But um, there is a reason that we inhabit these places in the same ways that our informants, and that's so that we can use the full breadth of our humanity in order to understand, analyze, and interpret the situation. So... While it might not be relevant to their experience, it's relevant to our experience and the sort of reflexivity that we're encouraged to have means that you need to incorporate that into your analysis in some way.
1: We'll have to move on, but this is a really provocative, useful thing for all anthropologists
0: who hate their informants and
1: haters of any kind out there (laughs) to think about. So the thing that has grabbed my attention recently is the ways in which people can experience dissociation. Recently I was reading this article by Yoche Ataria in the Anthropology of Consciousness journal and she was looking at the similarities between states of trauma and meditation. Both of these experiences involve a loss of sense of self And this was reminding me of another paper by Jeff Snodgrass and colleagues in culture, medicine and psychiatry, exploring technologies of absorption. And he was looking at how while playing video games, namely World of Warcraft, there's this tension between absorption and this widely explored concept of flow states Um, whereby you have to be challenged enough to be immersed and lose your sense of self, and also dissociation, so where the self transfers into other characters. And this can be really therapeutic and powerful or it can be dangerous, depending on whether people have uh, what he describes as toxic immersion, that they neglect their real self in their ability to manage everyday life and stresses, And I was just thinking about Steph's work on, is it Dragon Age, the computer game that you explore? Yes. I'm wondering how might fictional characters or avatars, which temporarily result in a loss or diversion of who we are or when we feel a sense of self, how might this help
3: or hinder us to be with other people in real life? So I should say before I I go further, Dragon Age is definitely not world of warcraft world of warcraft is a massively multiplayer game so you're usually there with tons of other people who are all playing their own avatars dragon age is a single player game so it's just you and the computer now that arguably allows for a greater sense of immersion because you don't have people running past shouting insults at you when you're playing this game you're fully in the world of the game Dragon Age 2 is actually an interesting game because it has quite a um, sophisticated plot that deals with someone who is a refugee from a country who then attempts to make a new life in a, a distant city. One of the my informants, when they were playing this game, found that it paralleled their real life incidents in a way that brought them back traumatically back. She was a uh, young girl in Zimbabwe during the land reforms and her father was killed when they um, took his farm and she was forced to um, become a refugee. Playing this game brought all of those incidents back because in this game as well, you also lose family members in your rush to escape from your homeland. And she found that um, when she was originally playing the game, she couldn't continue. It was too close to her experiences. She was too much in the game. However, when she changed characters, when she stopped playing as a woman and started playing as a man, it changed the game for her because it introduced a sense of distance that allowed her to approach those incidents from her childhood from that little bit more distance.
2: Playing through a different sort of character in the game does have spillover effects in the way that they interact with real people in the current moment?
3: Absolutely. Because when she played this game, she realised for the first time that her experience, which is rather out of the norm, could actually be understandable by someone else. And so when she sort of like went onto Tumblr, which was my primary field site, and talked to other people who had played this game, suddenly she had a language with which to speak about her experiences that, that was otherwise almost unsayable.
0: I think all of these things, I think the whole notion of disassociative states is is premised on a particular notion of the self, Right. And I'm not sure I entirely.
1: But we're talking about multiple selves in a way, because we're talking about experiencing other versions of ourselves. Even with World of Warcraft, it can be a catharsis for hatred, as, you were, as we but, were I talking mean, about before. This is the thing and we're always
0: talking about, like, catharsis. We're always talking about self actualization. How can these people become their better selves? That kind of thing. Because I think it's a really modern phenomenon.
3: Aristotle originally talked about catharsis in the context of um, going and seeing a good play.
0: I'm not saying that bettering yourself is a uniquely modern phenomenon. But I'm saying there is something about Western individualised societies that has made bettering the self a kind of, in that sense of each individual chooses for themselves a particular set of goals and values, and then works towards meeting those goals and values. To me, that is a very now Western project.
3: A lot of the time when people experience trauma like this, they section it off and they don't allow it to become part of their personality. Incorporating it isn't about bettering yourself or becoming a better person. It's about living with what you've experienced.
1: And being able to live with other people again because what happens as a result of trauma is also you dissociate from others. That's not necessarily bettering yourself in a sort of modernistic project. Okay, well, look, hopefully that's been an interesting conversation for listeners as well that's all we have time for today i want to thank ian pollock thank you steph betts thank you simon Theobald. thank you and i'm julia brown thank you very much for listening today's episode was produced by all of us at the familiar strange now executive producer is ian pollock subscribe to the familiar strange podcast you can find us on itunes and all the familiar places and don't forget to leave us a review with your likes and dislikes it helps make the show better you can find the show notes, including a list of the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Julia Miller, Will Grant, Nick Trambuff, and Maud Rowe. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs> Woo!